First things first, I'm so happy to be back and recording after a small little break. Today's story is one that is absolutely nuts, and it's a story that I just happened to stumble upon recently. Though this case itself is from the later 1930s, this case is one that has hardly any information at all on it, and it seems that very few people have ever heard of it either. It's the story about a man named Stephen Melky. At 3 a.m. on the morning of December 22, 1939, Stephen wandered out into a busy highway and was struck by a car. Once officers arrived at the scene, they soon realized that this wasn't an accident. Someone had bound and gagged Stephen, and either had intentionally led him to the highway or sat back and watched as he stumbled helplessly into oncoming traffic. Today we talk about Stephen Melky and a case that was known at the time as the blindfold murder. Hi, I'm your host Missy, and I'm about to take you on a wild ride. Stories with plot twists, shocking endings, and unbelievable truths. Trust me when I tell you that this story is nuts. Nine-year-old William Joyce was driving along U.S. Highway 20, the boundary that separates South Bend, Indiana, from Mishawaka, Indiana, when suddenly, out of nowhere, a man stepped out into the highway. Unable to stop, William hit the man, sending him flying over 40 feet in the air. Immediately, William stopped his vehicle and attempted to give the man first aid, but he soon realized that he could not help him, so he got back in his car and rushed to the closest place he could find a phone to call for help in South Bend, Indiana. When police arrived on the scene at 3.30 that December 22nd morning, they found a 44-year-old man named Stephen Melky clinging to his life. Stephen had multiple broken bones, including bones in his neck. He had suffered severe trauma to the torso, legs, and chest. He was also hemorrhaging and suffering from internal bleeding. All of his injuries he had suffered were more than likely from being struck by the car. But there was something that immediately told police this was no accident. Stephen Melky's hands had been bound. Covering his eyes were several layers of surgical tape. His mouth was also covered with tape, and in his mouth police would later find a handkerchief with lipstick stains on it. And he was also missing a shoe. In an attempt to save his life, they would try to rush him to the hospital, but Stephen would succumb to his injuries before ever getting there. Not much is out there about Stephen's personal life, or his life before his death, really. Sources I found only mention that, at 44, Stephen was a factory worker and a widower. He was raising three boys, Robert, 18, Leonard, 14, and Frederick, 8. When police spoke to the boys, they had mentioned that Stephen had been home earlier that evening as he was studying a home correspondence course, attempting to become a foreman at the company he worked at at Mishawaka Rubber and Woolen Manufacturing. They also told police that they had last spoken to their father at around 11 p.m. that evening when Stephen had said he was going to bed. In fact, they hadn't even known that their father had left the house until police had knocked on their door. When police searched the Melky home, they find no signs of a struggle 
or anything out of place. The fact that nothing was missing from the home soon led investigators to believe that maybe Stephen was lured out of his house. But unlike the home, the crime scene itself does indeed have some interesting clues. Tire tracks at the scene make it appear as though a car had dropped Stephen off somewhere around about 140 feet from where he was actually hit. It also appeared as though Stephen had been bound around his ankles with tape, but he had managed to free his legs, though he could not free his wrists, which were still bound behind him when he was found. After he was dropped off, Stephen, with his eyes covered in surgical tape, began to wander more than likely looking for help. The ground covered in snow allowed detectives to follow his tracks, which led them from the drop-off point through a wooded area, then toward a culvert where he would eventually lose one of his shoes. More than likely exhausted, his tracks show that Stephen sat for a short time before his tracks show him beginning to walk in the direction of the highway. A second set of footprints of the snow run alongside Stephen's. Though the prints have never been linked to Stephen's murder, investigators believe that the footprints were those of the person responsible for his death, and that this person had either lured or perhaps even forced him or even pushed him out onto the highway. The second set of tracks led to behind a telephone pole where the killer could have hidden while he or she then watched Stephen Melky die. But here's the thing. Who would want to hurt Stephen and why? Well, police did have a few suspects in mind, and very soon after Stephen's death, they brought in a local waitress, 27-year-old, and I'm hoping to get this name right, although I am not quite sure how to pronounce this name. It looks like Barrett, and so that's what we're going to go with, Barrett Davis, and her fiancé, Alan Pominski. Barrett worked at the Old Heidelberg, a local tavern that Stephen was known to frequent. In fact, Barrett and Stephen had become such close friends that her fiancé, Alan, had begun to get jealous over their relationship. And Alan was seen arguing with Stephen not too long before Stephen was murdered. When brought in for questioning, the pair said that the evening of December 22nd, they spent the night at the local bar and Alan took Barrett home around 3.30 a.m., driving himself home after. Police would bring both Barrett and Alan back in for a lie detector test, but they would both pass. Police would also question another suspect, a 41-year-old named George Smith, a co-worker of Stevens. George had also allegedly had feelings for Barrett as well, and he had also been seen arguing with Stevens shortly before Stevens' death. However, when brought in, George also passed a lie detector test. Police would then decide to do a comparison of the tire tracks found at the scene and the tire tracks on each one of their suspects' cars. But unfortunately, the tracks for Barrett, Allen, nor George matched the tire tracks at the scene of the crime, and so none of the suspects were ever charged in this mysterious murder of Stephen Melky. And that actually is where the story ends. There were no other suspects, and nothing else was ever investigated, and this ended up being just a blip in the local newspaper. Stephen Melke's case went cold and is still unsolved to this day. Three years after the death of Stephen Melke, Alan Perminsky pled guilty to grand larceny using a revolver. Stephen's youngest son, Frederick, who was eight at the time of his father's murder, was placed in an orphanage until he was eventually adopted in 1946 and he would pass away in 2011. 
Robert and Leonard would join the military, with Leonard dying in 1943 at just 17 years old. His body lost at sea while on active duty. I absolutely hate how short this case was, and I'm really sorry about that, but there's really nothing. There's nothing about this case other than where I found it and some of the source material. So I will obviously link that for you. But I feel like this case could have been solved. This definitely could have been a solved case. If you think of like the 1930s and how well their um, forensic science possibly was back then, not really the best. And so maybe the tire tracks did match. Or what if there was DNA on the handkerchief? If you remember, there was a handkerchief stuffed inside of Stephen's mouth with lipstick on it. I wish there would have been a little bit more investigative work in this case. And I'm kind of bummed that there wasn't. I feel like the answer is probably staring us in the face. But there was no, no evidence to prove anything, right? Anyway, I hope that you enjoyed this very quick case today. And if you have any theories, go ahead, pop on our Facebook group. Join the Facebook group if you haven't yet. It's facebook.com backslash this story is nuts podcast. If you have story suggestions, please send them to this story is nuts at gmail.com. So thank you so much for listening today and come back next week for an all new episode of this story is nuts, which will drop on Wednesday. Until then. Stay naughty, my friends. Nuts was written and produced by Missy Reese with music by Logan Reese off of Groovepad.